what is it that people want to know about? Nobody's going to be Googling like Jen's fabulous Europe adventure, but maybe somebody's Googling, you know, safe places to go in Europe, how to spend 10 days in Italy, like really narrowing down what do people want to know so you can answer their question and then be valuable. And that's the only way that you're going to actually have a business online is by providing value to others. Hi. My name is Kara Myers and welcome to the Travel Business Lounge. Each week I chat with women who have built incredible businesses in the travel and tourism industry. You'll hear their inspirational stories of success. We went from 2,000 a month to about 70, 72,000 a month um, in that span of, of nine years. And struggle. I wish that I could tell you that I pivoted really quickly and like jumped back on my feet and I, I did it and what they learned along the way. Give yourself the grace of knowing that it's not gonna happen overnight and you're gonna make a ton of mistakes. And as long as you learn from them and move forward, that's okay. So grab a coffee, hit subscribe, and get ready to learn and feel inspired. Hello, hello, my name is Kara and welcome to episode 29 of the Travel Business Lounge, the place where we celebrate and learn from female entrepreneurs in the travel industry. I am super pumped to share today's episode because I am joined by Jen Ruiz of Jen on a Jet Plane. Jen is a phenomenal travel blogger, travel influencer, content creator, and overall business genius. In this episode, Jen shares the story of how she decided to take 12 trips in 12 months in the lead up to her 30th birthday and how that decision completely transformed her life and opened up a career into travel blogging, being a travel influencer, a content creator, and now an uber successful TikToker. She shares loads of really practical tips and strategies, and she's just such an inspirational person. You'll notice at several points in the interview, she has such a positive take and approach to life and to business. She is a dreamer like so many of us are in the travel industry, but she's also incredibly strategic and practical in her approach to growing her business. And though I loved every aspect of this conversation, I really enjoyed our deep dive on TikTok because it's a topic that I haven't had the opportunity to discuss yet. And it's something that I've wanted to talk about for such a long time because it's such an important platform. It is the platform where people are seeing the most amount of growth or the best return on your time investment, your effort. So it's just been really great to chat with Jen about how she's grown on TikTok, the types of posts that she's creating, some of the challenges of the platform, like dealing with haters. TikTok is pretty notorious for being a bit of an uglier platform when it comes to nasty comments. But again, Jen's take on how best to handle and treat those kinds of comments is just really fascinating and really inspiring. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. I hope you can take away some really practical tips to help grow your own travel business. So let's dive right into it today. Here is Jen Ruiz of Jen on a Jet Plane. All right. Hello, Jen. Welcome to the Travel Business Lounge. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Kara. 
I was really excited when I stumbled across your TikTok not too long ago, uh, not only because your videos are great, very addictive, and very informative, so I definitely want to chat more about TikTok later on, but I was just really fascinated by your story and how you got into travel and what you were doing before you got into travel, so I thought that would be a good place to start. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Oh, well, thank you so much. I think it's always great to hear that my message is being received. Um, I started travel blogging back in 2014 when I was still practicing law full time. It was really just a creative outlet at the time, something to do besides the really boring legal paperwork. And it grew into a hobby from a, from a hobby to a side hustle. I started making some money on the side and then eventually my full time job. So I've now been doing that full time for the last three years. I really was pushed forward by a 12 trips in 12 months challenge that I did the year before my 30th birthday to send off my 20s in a really fun way. And also just to feel like I had a personal accomplishment in that milestone, you know, decade where a lot of people are reassessing and trying to see what they've accomplished by 30. So for me, it was a a really big wake up call that, you know, even though I had been traditionally trained as an attorney, had a lot of student loans to that end, but I didn't necessarily have to be stuck on any one path if I like something better. Um, And so I think that that's been a big life lesson that I've taken. And it was a good decision to pursue and take a chance on myself versus just kind of keeping towards what you expect everybody to do, you know, what everybody expects you to do. And trying something different because it's it's kind of the time to do so, right? Like we're actually living in the perfect time where blogging is suddenly a thing and influencers are a thing and working remotely is a thing. And these things are all, you know, the first time ever in history that we see them actually be viable career paths for people. So for me, it's been quite a journey and I'm really happy that I, that I took that leap. That's amazing. I love the idea of 12 trips in 12 months. Where where are some of the places you went during those first 12 months? Sure. So I was just kind of booking trips as the deals came up. So a lot of places maybe weren't necessarily on my radar, like Aruba wasn't on my radar, but JetBlue had just launched their new routes to Aruba that year. And when a new route launches with any airline, they usually have some inaugural pricing so that you can be enticed to book that route. So I got my ticket for like $70 round trip to Aruba. And so all of a sudden Aruba's on the schedule uh, and had a great time there, you know, swam with sea turtles, visited the desert there because there's actually a big desert in the middle of the island and just a lot of really other cool things that I didn't realize I could do. And that was pretty much the case for so many of the trips. I went more where the deals were. One or two trips I knew I had set based off of my bucket list goals, quote unquote. So like seeing lavender in the south of France, seeing, you know, the sunrise over Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Those were more intentional, but otherwise things like Aruba, the Grand Canyon, you know, Toronto, all of these came up because I was able to find last minute deals there, Cuba. Um, And so some of those trips were really impactful. Some of them ended up being more fun than I thought they would be. Um, But in any case, they were all part of that journey of realizing that travel has a way of kind of empowering you, making you feel present in the moment and reminding you that there's so much more to life outside of your daily bubble. Absolutely. That must have been just such an incredible year of learning and life experiences. 
Were you still working full-time in your legal profession at that time? Yes, I was. So it was really difficult. I mean, I had, I was lucky that I had transitioned from private law to nonprofit law. So at least I had some semblance of breaks, right? Like I had my full 10 days in addition to the federal holidays, which before when I was in a private firm, federal holidays meant nothing. Like it's Christmas and you'd still be expected to be in the office. But this was, you know, every bank holiday we got and still had sick leave on top of that. So it felt like I really had so much more vacation time than what I've been working with as a private firm attorney, where every moment that you take away from the firm is really frowned upon and you feel guilty for it, even if you're entitled to it. So it was a much different setting. And that's what allowed me to take those liberties and start traveling more. That's great. And and talk to us about your travel blog, how that got started. Was it just intended to kind of journal your personal experiences at that time, share that with friends and family? Or did you have a plan or intention to eventually turn that into a money-making opportunity? I think it's everybody's dream when they start a blog to have it be a money-making opportunity, but then also getting from that idea to execution, it's just a big like chasm in between because so many people don't really learn how to treat a blog like a business or take the time to put in the effort to create content for the blog and attend conferences and network and just do all the things you have to do. So no, none of this was intuitive. None of it was anything that I knew. I kind of just fumbled my way through it. And that's what took me so long too, versus somebody else that maybe within the first year of launching a blog can monetize if they know what they're doing. You know, I rebranded twice. I wasn't even a travel website. I was just a lifestyle place, just writing articles that didn't get placed for other places like Elite Daily or things like that. So just random kind of lifestyle listicles. And I rebranded to like, what's Jen up to? Because I knew I wanted it to be more experiential than it initially was, but that still wasn't like 100% clear what that website was about. So it took me a few years before finally in 2016, I landed on Jen on a jet plane. I started to travel more and it started to fall into place. And even then it wasn't until 2018 where I attended my first SEO workshop, full day search engine optimization workshop at a conference. I paid 150 bucks, you know, bit the bullet and sat down for a few hours of intensive training. And then finally I understood, you know, what is the difference between just writing and telling stories for your friends and family where it isn't necessarily something that has global appeal and it isn't something that's going to necessarily be a business model. It's just you sharing something personal and then differentiating that from something that does make money, which is where you identify what the general public is looking for and you provide something to the general public to answer that need to, you know, and that applies in any way for any entrepreneur, like everybody we see on Shark Tank is trying to identify that, right? So what is something that the general public is looking for and how can we fill that need? And you're as a blogger, you do that online. So what is it that people want to know about? Nobody's going to be Googling like Jen's fabulous Europe adventure, but maybe somebody's Googling, you know, safe places to go in Europe, how to spend 10 days in Italy, like really narrowing down what do people want to know so you can answer their question and then be valuable. 
And that's the only way that you're going to actually have a business online is by providing value to others. Beyond that, I think it's just the blog for entertainment purposes, just for you sharing your stories. That's fine. But the minute you switch that pivot from this blog is about me and my stories to this blog is about the people who are searching for information, then I think you really are onto something. And that's such a like incredible distinction because you're absolutely right. It's it's great to have a, a personal blog and to have a, a passion project, but if you do want to monetize, you do have to think about your readers and the value that you're offering them. Would you say that SEO has been the biggest tool in helping you figure that out and, and grow your blog into something you could monetize? Absolutely. It's a game changer. And for many people, it's really intimidating because it sounds technologically involved. It sounds like something that would require different, you know, training. And it really isn't. Again, it's just a matter of knowing, okay, a thousand people want to know, like, what's the best hotel in San Juan? Literally, nobody wants to know, like, where to uh, swim with pigs in San Juan. And so if you're doing this random, you know, thing about swimming with pigs, which is not really a thing here, it doesn't mean that you still, a lot of people resent it because they think, oh, I'm writing for the algorithm. I can't write what it is I want to write. But I think the same thing about people who are writing books, because I'm also self-published, you want to write a book that people are looking for because you're just going to go against the tide and you're going to just really make work so much harder for yourself if you have to constantly every single day find people to click on your blog find people to buy your book and like beg them to do so like please come and look at this versus having people out there looking for what you're offering and being like oh my god i can't believe i found jen's blog this is amazing like let me click on it it's so different to have you be like click on my blog, like click on my blog, read my blog, please read my blog, please. I promise you, I need the views. And it's so different to do that. And then to have somebody be like, oh, I'm, I'm looking for this answer. Oh my God, I just found this amazing blog post. That's really comprehensive and answers all the questions I have. I have to share it with everybody in my party so they can read it too. So when we're planning our trip, we all know, you know, like, and that goes for any video, any blog post, any piece of content you create. So it's just really different. And that's where you get the difference between the 99% of bloggers that are just on there, like desperately peddling their stuff. And those who understand that when they provide value, the readers, the customers, the followers, they come to you. Yeah. And I think it's, I love that you say people, you know, when they speak about writing to the algorithm, you almost scoff at that. But actually, if you're writing to the algorithm, it means that you're, you know, writing to what the readership is is looking for. You're just looking at the data and utilizing that information and targeting people that are interested in what you have to say, rather than just playing this guessing game, like you say. Exactly. And you can still say what you need to say, but at least now you have the eyes on your work. Now you have the audience so that you can tell that audience what you want. But if you're speaking to an empty room, if you're putting out a blog post that nobody's searching for, if you're writing a book for which there's no market in a subject that nobody's looking for, you're not going to get the eyes anyway. So in order to get your message across, you have to have people's attention. You have to be able to just at least get in front of them. And so one of the best ways to do that is to be writing and answering their questions that they're already looking for solutions and answers to. Now, one of the things that I've struggled with with SEO, because I've played around with a few different tools, is even just coming up with the ideas to look to see what terms are 
highly searched for, coming up with brainstorming that initial process of just throwing a bunch of ideas out. And you can then look at the data and figure out, okay, these ones are highly searched for, these ones are not so much so. How do you start that process? How are you brainstorming at the beginning? I always just use the whatever free search engine. So if I were writing a book on Amazon, I'd start typing in text into Amazon's predictive text and see what comes up. So maybe road trip. If I'm writing a book about road trips, I type in road trip and I'd see all the predictive text that comes up. Road trip itineraries, road trip Europe, road trip. So you know, see what it is that Amazon suggests. And I would start there because if it's in the list of suggested information, that means that it's getting typed in enough that it's, you know, something that Amazon's picking up on. Similarly for Google, if I'm on there and I want to just think about something I want to write about destination, I'll put in that term broadly and then I'll go down to people also search for. And usually that helps me identify what it is that people are looking for. And then also the subheaders. So I will pull my, my headers for the article directly from that. So let's say I want to write an article about like things to do in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And then I see that people also look for restaurants in San Juan, hotels in San Juan, you know, food tours in San Juan. I would put all of those as headers on the article. Right. Do you find that longer form content seems to work better or do you like to publish multiple shorter articles or do you have, is there, is there a, a difference? Is there a preference? So I'd like to have at least one long form post that's like cornerstone content. So it's kind of your really long authoritative spoke, like in the hub and spoke model of blog posts, it's the hub. It's the circle that everything connects to. It's where you have kind of your bulk information. And then I like to do a, li- a lot of little posts that are linked out from that main big post. So I'd like to have a minimum of four posts on any one related topic. And so it'll be like one post that's really comprehensive and then three posts that are sub you know, posts. So maybe my first post will be things to do in San Juan. And then I'll have another post on, you know, this particular restaurant, a review of this particular restaurant that I ate at that I see is new and has a lot of people looking for it, or a review of the particular food tour or where to stay in San Juan, like a more comprehensive post on just hotels. But I'll usually have, I'll try to aim to have at least four from any one destination. So you're already seen as an authority for Google, anything less than that. And it seems like you just wrote a one-off post about a place that you haven't really visited extensively. Right. And that's helping to keep readers on your website for longer as well, isn't it? Because they're they're on one page and then suddenly they're finding a link that will take them to another page and so on. So yes, that's correct. So interlinking is very important to have people go from one page to another. It also improves your bounce rate. So the amount of people who click back to Google after going to your post Google takes that into consideration when ranking you. So if everybody who clicks through your post doesn't get a satisfactory answer and they have to click back to the main search, Google will penalize you for that. So if you have posts that you've now interlinked and instead of clicking back to the main search, people are clicking around your website, that's good. Right. Okay. Now going back to 2018, when you first started to make some money with your blog, how are you, how was that first income coming in and and how are you continuing to make money with your blog today? Sure. So I think the first income was completely unexpected. It was really um, freelance travel writing because I had been submitting my articles to big publications for backlinks to my site. Because even if you don't get paid, if a big publication 
that has a really strong domain authority, like Elite Daily, like Huffington Post, you know, like you know Yahoo News, links back to your website, that helps your website do better. So I was doing initially a lot of these posts with the bigger freelance channels in hopes that I would get a link back. A lot of people will do freelance posts for other bloggers, and that's a good way to go if you know you can guarantee a link back. But I just figured the link juice from any one big place that links to me is so much more than any you know blog so I really wanted to focus on the big fish so once I did that I was doing a lot of articles for free which a lot of people thought was crazy but it got me seen by a travel editor because some of my articles went viral and so the travel editor reached out to me asked me to write for their travel vertical and that's how I got my first paid travel writing assignment it was $150 for like less than a thousand words but it was where I saw I could actually make money as a travel writer to write about travel and I thought that was pretty cool beyond that I made money on you know my first press trip when uh, my first paid press trip that was about a hundred dollars a day um, and that was a really interesting opportunity that I got after attending a travel conference and I've had money come to the blog also for sponsored posts like sponsored blog posts reviewing something and ads so ad revenue was something where once I crossed a 25,000 views a month threshold I started to get paid per views to my website Incredible. And and at what stage did you decide to leave your career in the legal profession and move into this full time? Probably way sooner than most people would. Um, So I didn't have a lot of money saved up. I really just ran out of vacation time after that year that I took. And it felt like my bosses kind of resented me for all the traveling that I had done and were now really suspicious of any time I took off or any time I called out for a sick day. And I just didn't like it. I felt like after that year, I just really had a wake up call that I wanted to do something different. So the year ended in January and by April, I quit my job. In March, I had published my first book, self-published my first book. And it didn't do anything wild, like maybe a couple hundred bucks that I was making that month, but it was proof enough that I could make money online. And I had a job teaching English online that I had taken on early in my 12 trips and 12 months challenge, making $20 an hour that I could do remotely from anywhere. So I had that as a backup. And I'm somebody who has, you know, I waitress since I was 16. So I'm very used to the concept of like, Worst case scenario, like I can go into work and make like 80 bucks cash kind of thing. That's always the mentality I had as a waitress. And so with having this was kind of like a digital opportunity to do the same. Worst case scenario, I can always pick up some classes and make an extra hundred bucks in that day. So I wasn't sweating it. And I guess maybe that's the biggest kind of security that you can have with education because no job is secure, right? But you have the security of knowing that you have marketable skills that you can use to make money in whatever path it is that you decide to do. So I took that leap before remote, you know, work was a thing before the pandemic, back when everybody thought, you know, just being a lawyer is the most prestigious, amazing thing you can do. Um, I did not have six months of savings. I did not have a backup plan. I just knew if I didn't jump then, there was a very real possibility that I never would. And I didn't want to get stuck and then be there 30 years later thinking, what if I tried something different? I didn't have children. I didn't have a dog. Like I really didn't have anybody holding me. So I just took the leap. I know that sounds crazy for most people, but I'm very happy I did it. Yeah. And I'm so happy that it's worked out for you. And I mean, obviously there's a lot of bravery there, but I love your positive attitude of saying, you know, there are options beyond 
the career that I've had for the last years, even if it means waitressing, even if it means a few side hustles while I work towards this goal. It's just such a good attitude to have and to to continue to be willing to work hard with that goal always in mind is really incredible. And there's always a lot of really crappy legal jobs. That was also something I realized as I, because I was born in two states. So I've also gone through the process of like waiting, pending bar clearance and kind of having to just sift through the Craigslist legal jobs. And so there's always horrible law firms that nobody wants to work at that are like just mind numbing, horrible paperwork. And so I knew those jobs were available. Like if I just really wanted to hate my life, like I knew I could do something with my license on one of those jobs because they're always hiring. They have such turnover, like the worst work atmospheres, but I knew I could get in there if I needed to. So I think that also gave me some security because law firms are always hiring somebody to just sit there and like, you know, just do the same thing over and over again every day to the point of, you know, zombie status. And so if I, if I wanted to do that, I knew I could, but I knew that, you know, also trying something different would probably be more fulfilling and that I always had that to fall back on. So I had that as a sort of safety net of sorts, but it also a motivation because I didn't want that to be what I was going back to. And if I was going to make a leap, I really wanted to get far away from that world. Yeah, that is such a good driving factor because, you know, if even if you're doing really long days and you're not making any money yet, at least you're working towards this, you know, being independent and being able to travel rather than getting stuck in a in a job that you really know you don't like. Yes, no matter what, you're working towards something you're passionate about. And when you're a content creator, um, you have to really have a love for what you're doing. So for me, it was the storytelling, it was the ability to create. And I think that that's, you know, for a lot of people that just like to be, you know, that have that mindset, they like to build things, they like to see their ideas come to fruition. I think it can be incredibly rewarding, challenging, um, and not for everybody, because you have to be very driven, you have to get away from the very ingrained mentality that the only way to get financial security is to get a good education and find a good job. That's still something that it's I mean it's been 34 years that society has been whispering that into my head so no matter how much I logically know that's not the case there's still a fear response a lot of times when you encounter scarcity that that's the first thing that comes to mind like oh I like I told you or this was a gotcha moment or it was too good to be true you know like you really just have to go back and you know work the the nine to five and do the very tread path um but that's not the case and actually I, I a lot of people are more successful when they're able to do their own thing when they're able to really be in creative flow and do what's what they're best at um but it's just that society teaches us otherwise so i'm excited actually that over the last two years we've seen a big change and a big push for people that want to do more skills-based work based off of what they're good at and that they're able to now find opportunities to do that remotely where before, you know, that was something that was really exclusive to people that were middle-aged and, you know, six-figure earners in a really comfortable spot. Um, now everybody can work remotely. And I think that that really opens up a lot for people who are creatives and want to be able to monetize their skills. So I'm, I've been really happy to see that change. Absolutely. And it's so cool that you've been at the forefront of that. And you, I mean, you speak about being a content creator because you're more than just a blogger. You're more than just a published author. Uh, you're also on lots of different social media platforms, creating lots of different types of content. Can you speak a little bit about that? 
Sure, absolutely. So I am on all the social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Um, TikTok has been the biggest focus for me over the last two years because it's where a lot of the other channels are trying to imitate and compete with. So that's the introduction of Instagram Reels and Facebook Reels and YouTube Shorts. Um, Everybody's trying to keep up with that short form video content. So by being on TikTok, I can feel like I'm ahead of the trends and like I have a more generous algorithm in terms of getting my content seen. Whereas all the other apps, which are owned by Facebook, are very much a pay-to-play algorithm and has been have been very frustrating for creators because their content won't even get seen by their followers. It, for me, TikTok has provided, you know, it's it's not a perfect channel by any means. And I also have moments of pure frustration with them, but it's the best channel right now for me to reach my audience in a broad manner. Yeah. And I loved your TikTok videos when I came across them. I really enjoyed them, found them super informative. And just I just found myself scrolling through looking one after the other. And for those that haven't seen your TikTok or haven't kind of crossed your channel yet, could you describe the kind of content that you're putting out and also what seems to work best for you? Sure. So when I started, I was talking a lot about remote work, how I'm able to make a living as a blogger, um, just kind of highlighting everything that people were going through, because I really started posting regularly during the pandemic when people weren't open to hearing as much about travel. I transitioned to sharing more about kind of like travel jobs. And then as I started traveling again, travel inspiration, travel deals, digital nomad visas, you know, anything that has to do with working remotely, working online, seeing places. So hopefully all of that somehow ties together. I like to think it does. I know if I was a much more set niche, like this is just my Disney account about going to Walt Disney World, Florida, right? That it would grow a lot quicker. But I find that um, I have a lot of different things to share. Maybe it's information about how I got a particular refund that, you know, people might not be aware of or travel credit cards or a new startup or a competition that they have now. You know, Italy has a incentive where they're paying people to get married there to bring weddings back to the area. So all those things that I see that I think are useful and related to travel or remote work, I share on my channels. And I do see different things that do well. I think controversy does well on TikTok. Unfortunately, it's a platform where people love to give their opinions and sometimes mean opinions. So if you have something that is going to be a source of controversy, it's probably going to do well just because People are watching it multiple times, sharing it, putting hateful comments on it. And for a lot of creators, I think that can be intimidating. Like they're like, oh my goodness, my first time going viral and I'm really stressed out. And so many people are commenting mean things. But at this point, I've actually, I've taken it as a good sign. If I start to get mean comments, that means it's getting traction. It's getting seen. It's going to go viral. So I take the mean comments as a good indication. You know, it means that somebody besides my friends or my family are seeing it. And, um, and, and knowing that it gives it a boost. So I mean, for I sometimes people try and do that intentionally, like they'll misspell something and hope that people will comment and correct them or they'll say something or they'll put something on purpose, because people just love to comment and point things out. So normally, if it's something that I know is a little bit controversial, like the last one that I that had 12 million, I think now 14 million views is um, the fast pass in Disney. So going really fast in the line. And so that's controversial. We're going to talk about like the haves and the have nots and is $15 expensive or is it not, you know, like so many possible points of contention within that one video, you know, should you be an adult at Disney to begin with that it causes conversation within your comments. And that's what you want. You ideally want your video to cause so many different 
And all the viral videos that you see will have something like that. It'll be that people started commenting for some reason that maybe isn't even related to the message of the video, but it's something that sparked a conversation in the comments. And that's what keeps the views going. That's so fascinating. And again, I love that you have such a positive attitude in terms of looking at these negative comments, looking at the haters as helping you in a way to to boost views, um, increase your audience rather than taking those nasty comments to heart. It's such a better perspective to have on it. Yeah, because no matter what you post, somebody will find something wrong with it. Even to um, the other day, I posted just recently posted a video of like the happiest man ever who ran an Uber, like a karaoke lift Uber car ride share. And I already was watching the video with the critical eye of like, before I posted it, of like, what will someone find wrong with this, the happiest video ever? Like what could potentially somebody find wrong? They could say maybe like the car is cluttered. There's a list that says something like best karaoke songs for female. They could be like, that's sexist. I'm trying to think like, you know, (laughs) what could they possibly come up with? But I already kind of try to anticipate it because I know that no matter what you put up, people will find something to gripe with. And so instead of sitting there and hoping that you can create content, that nobody's going to have a gripe with, you know, create content that's going to be useful. And that maybe having that extra bit of edge or conversation is going to help get your content seen. I posted a post on, you know, places I felt safe as a solo female traveler already just with that title. There's no room for debate there. I'm telling you places I felt safe, like period. (laughs) It's not Uh, It's not being asserted as a fact. Like I felt safe in these places, the end. However, (laughs) you know, people find things with that. And I had put, you know, Winnipeg, Canada. I went on a press trip there. And apparently that's like the most dangerous place in Canada, which honestly is saying something I feel because Canada is like the safest place on earth. So if it's the most dangerous place in Canada, like the most dangerous place in Care Bear land, you know, like, okay. (laughs) And I'm sure, you know, legitimate things happen in Winnipeg, like in any city, but just, it's not the place that I expected to trigger people. Like I had Jordan in that same video. So I expected the Middle East to be much more triggering than Canada, but everybody was commenting on Canada and Winnipeg is the least safe place in Canada and all of that. And so that video, because of that conversation with Winnipeg got like 300,000 plus views, but the video part one that I had where I had kind of safe places I felt I felt safe that were a little bit less controversial that were like kind of everybody agrees you feel safe there 19,000 views so having that extra like kind of controversy over Winnipeg helped put that video get seen and ultimately I think if you're putting out content that's helpful and just expect that no it doesn't even have to be intentional like you don't have to be controversial intentionally somebody will find something to take issue with in your video don't worry about that but just don't take it personally when they do take it as a sign that your content's getting seen and take that as a necessary evil that comes with content creation because at the same time I like to always I always just feel better thinking that yeah this is really stressful yeah it would be different if I decided to make a job that wasn't dependent on you know the public but at the same time you're either going to be the person that like uses social media. So you're going to be the product that they're selling, the person whose data they're collecting, like they're either going to be using you 
to sell you a product or you can use social media to sell a product. So you can either be, you know, the the product being being sold to or, or you can be like the, the person that's actually using social media to your advantage. So I try to keep that in mind and, and think to myself, no matter what, like unless you're going to go live under a rock in 2022, you're going to be on social media, you're going to be tracked. So how can you at the very least put that to your benefit so that it's helping your business? You're not on there just wasting time, but you're on there actually like making money and doing something productive. And this applies for anybody, no matter what your business is. You could be an AC repair guy that's super local and that works with his hands and has nothing to do online, but you're sharing your tips online about AC repair. And suddenly you're a YouTube phenomenon and people are coming to you in the middle of the summer, hoping that you can save them money on the expensive repairs that people are charging them. So really there's room for anybody to make a living online and use the online space to boost their business. That's so interesting. And actually speaking about making money and and speaking about TikTok, are you making money through TikTok? Are you making money through promoting particular brands on TikTok? Are you just diverting people to your website? Like how are you utilizing TikTok to earn an income? Yeah, many different ways. So definitely I have the link in bio on purpose that goes to my website. So all of those clicks I monetize. Um, I do sponsored posts and that can be independent of TikTok or through the TikTok creator marketplace. I've done both, but that is working with brands depending on where they want to base that. I've done the like TikTok creator fund, but that pays per view and is really low. So I've cut that out because it was like maybe 70 bucks or something a month, if that. And it, I felt like it penalized my views a little bit. So I just thought it maybe wasn't worth it. But that is a way that you can monetize. You can monetize by just creating content for others. So I create TikToks for a coding bootcamp. And that was a big way that I was able to uh, fund myself when other income streams dropped for a while when travel completely fell off. So many different ways that you can be making money. Interesting. And, And now just for a few more practical tips with TikTok. So you say controversial posts, you want to get lots of comments on your posts. But what about frequency? Is it really important to be posting very regularly? Or can you, you know, and and how regular is necessary once a week, once a day? What are we talking? I do suggest that you post regularly when you start and there's different, you know, schools of view with regards to this. Some people say if you're posting constantly, then you're not posting as much quality. And so then TikTok doesn't see you as doing quality, but it's really hard to predict what you know is going to do well. So I think when you're starting, it's best to kind of just throw spaghetti at the wall and then double down on what's working. So I would post at least once a day, multiple times a day if you can, understanding that you don't have to sit there and film and create every new video. You can use existing footage. You know, it can be really easy for you to create something. It can take you less than a minute to take an old clip make it seven seconds long, put some text over it, put a trending song and you have a TikTok. So you never know it's going to go viral. I would throw everything, see what sticks. And then when you do have something that grabs and, and gets traction, I double down on that, do more of that. You can reply to comments and TikToks with videos. So I would reply to your top comments on your top videos with video replies and start there because you've already identified something that's resonating with people. So do more of that. And will you reshare the same sort of content, same sort of videos with slight tweaks to see if changing the caption or changing the music in the back makes any difference? Or do you try and create completely unique posts each time? 
No, absolutely. Share, repost. This is definitely different than Instagram. It's not about the grid or the aesthetic or somebody has seen this before. You're definitely encouraged. Repost the video that went viral. Use different captions. Use a different song. See if it reaches a different audience, especially because you know it already had something to attract so many people. So I would repost all your viral videos. Maybe not like one after the other, but if it's been several videos in between, um, you know, it's been a couple of weeks, why not just go ahead and repost that if it's evergreen. I think you don't have anything to lose. And I think it's worth just getting the most bang for your creative effort. I also would take everything you post on TikTok and repost it to Instagram Reels, to your Twitter feed, to your Pinterest, you know, as story or idea pins. And so you can really not have to really be killing yourself to make something different for every channel, but just taking your core content and stretching it out in as many ways as possible. Nobody's going to see what you do. And that's really great to know. I think that's also the fear people have. Like, oh, I'm going to like um, inundate people. People are going to get bored with me. Nobody's watching every single piece of content you put out. Nobody has seen every single Instagram story you have, every single post you have, every single blog you have, every single email you have. So to assume that because you sent out the message one way, it's already bothersome to people when they may not have even seen it to begin with, um, I think you're already knocking yourself out. And if somebody does follow you to that extent awesome but it's not going to be you know 99% of your readers so don't be afraid about putting out useful information more than once yeah and that's really great to know because especially when you say you should be posting on TikTok once a day when you're also managing all these other social media platforms that sounds really intimidating but when you can approach it with the understanding that you can repurpose the same videos and you can use that content on different platforms, it makes it so much more manageable. Correct. You're not sitting here and doing like a really detailed YouTube video a day, which is what YouTubers do if they want to grow. And that requires like 16 hours of editing. Again, I'm telling you, you can be doing a video in less than a minute. Just take an existing clip, put seven seconds to that clip, put some text overlay and a trending song. And that's a TikTok video. So it really shouldn't be that you're doing laborious kind of editing and work to put this together because that's also not the platform where that resonates, where that heavily curated, heavily edited stuff does well. People go viral like in their kitchen, you know, wearing sweats randomly with shaky video. So none of that matters. It matters more that you're sharing consistently and sharing something of value. It's either entertaining, inspirational, or educational. And are you sharing these videos live? Or are you posting them to be scheduled and shared at a later time? Do you use any kind of scheduling tools? I don't. I know that some scheduling tools now have them. I'll save things to drafts. So I'll work on things as I'm working on them and I'll leave them kind of set and ready to post. So when it's time to post, I'll go in and just actually manually upload it. But I don't use a lot of scheduling tools. Sometimes for the other channels I manage, but it's because I want to be hands off. Like I just kind of want to do all the work for that content creation, like in the beginning of the month, and then no, I don't have to touch it again. I don't mind being more hands on with my own social media so that I can respond more adequately to what's happening, you know, put more things as they come up. Um, just be a little bit more flexible. I do know Buffer has extended to TikTok. I know TikTok scheduling has been the last to hit all of the scheduling apps, but I think they're starting to be integrated more now, just like they're starting to be integrated more into influencer platforms. It took the longest time where you, your TikTok followers weren't being counted on your total followers for influencer platforms. Um, but it's starting to be integrated now. People are seeing that it's not going anywhere. Yeah, so that's definitely something that you can utilize. 
Interesting. And, and before we go, just to circle back kind of to what we started talking about at the beginning of SEO, do you use a lot, utilize SEO strategies when coming up with your captions and the kind of content you're putting out on TikTok as well? Sometimes I will utilize more the TikTok trends. So if I am doing that, it'll be more because TikTok has shown me that they have a trending hashtag that's happening. You know, like right now, I think it's like NFL draft. And every year when the NFL draft comes up, you see NFL draft on every single hashtag for every single video because people just want to capitalize off the traction going to that hashtag, regardless of whether or not their video is actually about the NFL draft. So I like to see more of what's trending on TikTok. And I look at hashtags, I look at sounds, and I look at effects. Because sometimes TikTok will have sponsored sounds. Let's say it's going to partner with Miley Cyrus and it wants to promote Miley Cyrus's new song. So if you use that song in the background for your video, even if it's not like trending number one on TikTok, but it's showing on the Discover page as like the trending song of that moment, that means TikTok has a campaign with that artist. And TikTok wants to show that artist, hey, here are these huge numbers of people that use your song. So if you're among those people that get in and use that song, your video will like get more traction. The same thing goes when there's a sponsored effect or a really a trending effect. Like recently it was the rotoscope um, where the person turns into like block shapes and figures and kind of like dances around. Um, so that was a new trending effect. And so you've seen a lot of people with these videos, even if it's like weird, doesn't make sense because they want to capitalize off the traction of that trending effect. So a trending sounds, trending hashtags and trending effects are what I look to to see what's happening on TikTok and how can I best maximize off of what TikTok is trying to give exposure to right now. And then I do use captions and text in the video with the hope that it helps TikTok to classify and understand what my video is about. So I will never have a video without any text in it so that at least TikTok knows or I won't have a caption that's just completely generic and it's just like, I don't know, follow me to heaven. Like that means nothing unless I like, I actually want TikTok to classify me for like heaven. So I'd rather say something more along the lines of what I want. Like this is a really cool um, small town find, or this is a foodie favorite. Like what do I want TikTok to categorize this video as? And then I'll put that in the caption. I'll put that in the in video text and TikTok will use that when analyzing. So that's one way where I do try to get seen. And then the hashtags, they are used later on to classify your content. So I will only use, let's say, one of those trending unrelated hashtags because the rest of the hashtags will actually be valuable. So I'll use maybe three to four hashtag travel tips, hashtag uh, visit Puerto Rico, things like that, because then if my video does well, people can still go and find me through those hashtags. So I wouldn't necessarily just put like hashtag NFL draft, you know, and all the random unrelated ones. I do like three or so related hashtags and then one trending one to try to capitalize off of that. That's great. This has been such an enjoyable conversation. So many really practical tips and strategies. And I've also just loved hearing your approach to life and to business. It's just, it's very positive, but it's also very practical and strategic. And yeah, I've just loved this conversation. So thank you so much, Jen. If any of our listeners want to learn more about you, want to follow you on any of these platforms or check out your blog, where is the best place for them to find you? Absolutely. They can find me at jenonajetplane.com or on all the social medias, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at jenonajetplane. And then my, and Amazon, my books are under Jen Ruiz. 
Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jen. And yeah, I'll be following you on TikTok. I'll see you there.